Letter to Stephanie Aronser from ANC in Paris, 22nd of July, 1992. Dear Madam, The investigating judge has on the 17th of July, 1992, made an order of Nole Prosecchi relating to the assassination of your sister, Dulcy September. The order is based on the fact that none of the investigations that were led with respect to the various suspects made it possible to identify the authors of the attack. The time limit for lodging an appeal is 10 days and will expire on July 30th. I remain at your disposal, Michael Msigi. My name is Neo Rakhajani, and this is the seventh episode of the podcast series, They Killed Dulcie. Before you hear this, you need to listen to the first six episodes. It is also the last episode in the series, unless there's development in the case. But that is actually not impossible because after decades of silence from authorities in France and South Africa, there is now a chance that this might change. We'll get to that before the end of the episode. But we begin in 1988, soon after Dulcie's death. This episode is called Impunity. Here's Nina Callahan. In the first episode of this podcast, we said Dulcie September had been erased. We didn't say she was never known. When she died, it was a big deal. This is Dulcie's colleague and friend, Jacqueline Derens. As, as soon as people in Paris heard about the murder, they simply went in their thousands in the streets. As the news traveled, People were angry. Crying because she's what she has been killed, you know, and shouting against the apartheid system. Protest action was carried out in France and South Africa. In Paris, Dulcie's memorial service was attended by 20,000 people. And then there was this song. It's a song made by Jean-Michel Jarre, at the time, one of the biggest artists in Europe, if not the world. The point we are making is this. Dulcie's death was not ignored when it happened. But when the thousands of mourners left her memorial service, the erasure had already begun. Firstly, the French investigation into her murder found no evidence to prosecute her assassins. Activists and lawyers, many whom we have interviewed for this podcast, find it difficult to accept that the investigation was carried out properly. But to this day, the French ambassador to South Africa, Christophe Arnaud, maintains that the French authorities did all they could to find the murderers. All lives are uh, has to have to be saved and preserved. So uh, and there's uh, France being a state of law, 
no assassination can be accepted in any case. So uh, there is no, uh, you said in a normal situation, there is only a normal situation. The, 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 the law is the same for everyone. So um, in the case of uh, Dulce September, the, the French government has always condemned very forcefully um, the, this murder. If I know well, she, there was an investigation following the murder. And, uh, and a very serious one. And there was uh, a lot of public talk about it. And But the only thing is that, uh, unfortunately, after uh, a number of years, the case was dismissed because of the, by, of the lack of um, any, any proof. In theory, it is true that the law is the same for everyone, as the ambassador says. In practice, this podcast tells a different story. The arms dealers, the middlemen, the bankers... The spies and the politicians who benefited from Dulcie's murder haven't faced any consequences of their involvement in illegal arms dealing. The networks of power and profit remained intact while Dulcie's memory began to fade. Take the example of Thompson CSF, the French arms company that Dulcie mentioned in her notes the company she suspected might have been tapping her phone. After having sold weapons to apartheid South Africa during the 1970s and the 1980s, the company changed its name to Thales. It is partly owned by the French state and remains one of the largest defense contractors in the world. When Thales next entered the spotlight in South Africa, it was not because the company was being brought to justice. Thales appeared in connection with a 1999 arms deal, where the South African government, now led by the ANC, spent billions of rand buying weapons, often from companies and countries, who had collaborated with the apartheid regime a few years earlier. It was meant to equip South Africa with warships, fighter jets and other armaments to the tune of 30 billion rand. All at a time when the country faced no clear military threat. Thales is the same company that has been in the news as late as this week as a party in the decade-long corruption case against former President Jacob Zuma. Leading at the half hour, the KwaZulu-Natal High Court in Peter Maritzburg will today hear arguments by the legal team representing the French arms company Thales. It, along with the former president, Jacob Zuma, are in court arguing for a permanent stay of prosecution. And, just like the French government allowed the apartheid state to run an arms bazaar in the heart of Paris, they appear to have continued providing cover for arms dealers breaking the law. Allegedly, the former French president, Jacques Chirac, lobbied his South African colleague, Thabo Mbeki, to stop the prosecutions against Thales following the arms deal. This dynamic has more to do with Dulcie September's fate than you might think. And we'll get to that later. For now, what is important is that the corporations who broke the law in the past not only appears to have continued doing so, they also appear to still be protected by politicians. We certainly can't say that the current French ambassador to South Africa has been involved in illegal activities in any way. But here's a curious fact that shows how corporates involved in the crimes of the past have remained influential and 
respectable. Before Christophe Arnaud became the French ambassador to South Africa, he was working for none other than the French arms company Thales. I'm a career diplomat, so I spent most of my career in the diplomatic service. And uh, at some point, I thought that it would be good to, to go out of the ministry and uh, to see what it looks like to be in the private sector. And, uh, and for a diplomat, if you want to be helpful, normally you, you look for a company which has um, interest abroad. And that's how it happened that I could spend a few years at Thales. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. I worked in, um, in Africa, of course, but not just in Africa. Also, I was based in Paris. So it is, I think, um, something interesting, not just technologically, because Thales is a very efficient and uh, innovative company, <laughs> but it's also from a kind of management point of view and, uh, and uh, business point of view. It's very interesting, I think, for diplomats to, to go and see how, we are, how things are happening elsewhere. For many, including many in the ANC, it has been easy to forget the sins of the past. The erasure of Dulce September seems to have been the price that had to be paid for making friends of former enemies. The past has bled into the present. The connections between France and South Africa that Dalsi was investigating seem to have transformed seamlessly. What remains of this story is the memory of Dalsi, the investigations that turned into nothing. Here's Rosmus Bits. Dalsi September's murder can't be understood as a simple act of violence. She was murdered to protect a system. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who should be held personally responsible for her murder. Obviously, the unknown assassins. And above them, the military intelligence operatives who likely planned Dorsey's murder. And finally, the people at the top, the politicians. Every, every house and every building looks like a fort. It's not a style of architecture, it's a style of defense. If we are to believe the anonymous military intelligence source, the order to assassinate Dorsey September originated in South Africa. Still today, we can't verify exactly who did it. But it isn't likely that such an order was written down. That's not how assassinations were ordered. Let's check yeah. it out. Yeah. Exactly how they were is difficult to say. The politicians from the late apartheid government who had to do with national security have, with very few exceptions, chosen to stay silent. Hello, my brother. What is your name? What is your name? Uh, my name is Nao Ali. Nao. Nao. Yeah, N-E-O. N-E-O. New. Yeah. There's oh. a guy working here with the same name, New. Oh, really? Is yes. It, is he Moton? I don't know. Oh, He's I a see. young guy who was helping the guy on the, with the uh, upholstery. Yes. He's also new. Yeah. yeah. My brother, I'm in your hands. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is Adrian Flock. I've, I was born on the 11th of December 1937. So um, next month I will be 81 years old. 
Flock was the Minister of Law and Order and Deputy Minister of Defense from 1986 to 1991. In that role, he was responsible for several acts of political violence, amongst them the bombing of the headquarters of the South African Council of Churches, also known as Kotso House. I was born from Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian home. And my whole life I, was a, I went through as, a, as being a Christian. But I must immediately say that uh, being a Christian doesn't mean that you really know what the Lord wants from you. So I did not know the heartbeat of Jesus. These days, Adrian Flock is reborn. He preaches a gospel of forgiveness with the intensity of a recent convert. I believe in the Bible. I'm a follower of Jesus. In his days in government, Flock was a member of the State Security Council. That was the group of top government ministers and officials who ran the apartheid security apparatus when Dorsey September was assassinated. Adrian Flock is one of the only high-ranking apartheid politicians who unreservedly have denounced apartheid and asked for amnesty. Therefore, he's one of very few remaining people who knows and is willing to talk about how operations, like bombings and assassinations, were decided at the highest level. You know, we, we, we received a lot of info on a daily basis. And this is now like intelligence services, for example, who would gather all this and yeah. present it to you. Exactly, exactly. And, and then they put it before a committee. And the committee consists of ministers. The president was the, was the chairman. Uh, they would also brief us uh, on the borders, what was happening there uh, in Namibia and so on. Uh, they also looked at, uh, at sanctions. We, would, they, we discussed it frequently there. And then we had to decide if, if, if there was a, a situation that we have to, to deal with. So uh, say if there was a problem like courts or house or an elimination had to be carried out, would that be left as open as that? We never discuss at, at the State Security Council. Uh, we never discussed to kill somebody. Never. It was never discussed there. What happened uh, was that the, the, the state president, he was a believer in, in the doctrine of uh, need to know. For instance, Gotse House. Gotse House, we had a briefing that morning that Gotse House was being used by terrorists coming back into the country. So we had a briefing telling us that inside Gotse House, it was the headquarters of the South African Council of Churches, that there is somebody there and he is handing them money so that they can live. And when that briefing was finished, the president said, colleague, will you please stay behind for a minute? And he spoke to me, and I sat down next to him there at the table, and he said, you have heard the briefing here this morning? I said, yes, sir. He said, are you happy with what's happening in Gotse House? I said, no. He said, what are you going to do about that? I said, sir, I don't know. He said, no, I want to tell you that you must make a plan. Go back to your people, and you must sit down and make a plan. And that is exactly what I told the commissioner of police. We had a briefing and the president told me that we must, we must make a plan. He said, okay, sir, I will see what plan can we make. And that is what happened. This is how Adrian Flock explains the bombing of Kotso House. From the state president, P.W. Boerter, and down the chain of command, plausible deniability was ensured. More like the order of business in an organized crime syndicate than in a government. If Dorsey September's assassination was decided like this, 
The only way to find out who really ordered her murder will be if somebody involved comes clean. Most of Apartheid's offenders haven't. Flock says that his decision to apply for amnesty was motivated by his faith. But in the years following the end of Apartheid, there's another avenue for confessions and amnesty in South Africa. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I consulted widely with my colleagues in, who was with me in cabinet and with my family and, and friends. And, and 95, 99% of the people that I asked said, no, why did you want to do that? You have done your job. PW was also a retired at that, PW Bota. I uh, made an appointment with him and he saw me and we had a very nice meeting and he said, yes, how can I help you? And I said, sir, I am considering applying for amnesty. And he listened me out. And then he said, but why do you want to do that? You have been doing your job under instructions. There were many, like President P.W. Bota, who didn't apply for amnesty. Particularly in the military establishment, where Dorsey's murder likely was ordered. Many of the people who knew the secrets of the systems are dead or dying. And with them, the answers families of victims are looking for will disappear. Like the documents burned in a blast furnace after the end of apartheid. This is another lost resource that could have helped us understand how we got to where we are. In a way, that was one of the ideas behind the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A place where truth could help free us from the past. But it was also many other things. A compromise, for one. To avoid a further and more bloody conflict. And the TRC has been called something else. A failure. In part, that's because so many of those who didn't apply for amnesty were allowed to walk free. To use a very simple image, the possibility of amnesty was the carrot that would motivate perpetrators of political crimes to come clean. And if they didn't, there was supposed to be a stick, prosecution. But that stick was never really raised. And this brings us to what happened between Dorsey's funeral in Paris and her marginal place in history of today. Because even after Dorsey's case was closed in France, it was still investigated by the TRC. This is human rights lawyer and former TRC commissioner, Yasmin Suka. I sat as a member of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I was also in charge of the Human Rights Violations Committee that was really responsible for dealing with families of victims, but also the question of recovering the truth about the past. And in that context, um, the story of Darcy September was one of those cases which we um, classified as an emblematic case um, because it had all the ingredients of, um, you know, a kind of very systematic and planned operation. Basically, the TRC decided to conduct its own investigation into Dorsey's murder. And Yasmin Suka gave the job to one of the best investigators she had. I was very fortunate in the sense that I had um, a number of international investigators who were assigned to the commission. And one of them was a Swedish colonel called Colonel Jan Acker Schalberg. And um, I got permission from the South African authorities here and our embassy in France. And I actually sent Jan Acker to 
France. But the Swedish colonel wasn't very successful, and there were several reasons for this. Firstly, one that directly contradicts what the French ambassador says about the commitment of the French authorities. We didn't have the dockets, or, and neither were we able to obtain any records from the French government. What was very clear was that the French government was blocking any access to records at that time. But Janake didn't only meet resistance from the French side. We also had another investigator that accompanied Jan Acker, and um, one, I was not very clear about how helpful he was to the investigation. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yasmin Suke said that the other investigator, the one who came with Jan Ake to Paris, wasn't very helpful. I think that's her way of alluding to something that I've heard several other sources say. Not everybody working on the investigation was trying to solve it. The term some used for people like that is sweepers. It sounds extraordinary, but when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that the apartheid security establishment placed agents in the TRC investigations. Especially for those who decided not to apply for amnesty, the interest is obvious. And so Darcy's case, like many others, remained one of those which the Commission was not able to resolve. But what happened next is harder to understand. Basically, the TRC passed on a number of high-priority cases to the state so that they could be investigated and prosecuted. The stick raised for those who didn't take the carrot. But the cases weren't investigated. They were left in a box somewhere while memories faded and witnesses began to die. Officials at the National Prosecuting Authority have said that politicians at the highest levels interfered to stop the prosecutions. Why did an ANC-led government decide to let their old enemies go free? This is researcher Michael Marchand from Open Secrets. If we reduce it to its absolute basic core, those ANC officials coming into power in 1994, when they looked across the table at those arms companies uh, or those banks, those were actors who'd been participating in a system that was trying to actively murder those people. And yet... In 2019 today, a former president, Jacob Zuma, sits in a court accused of happily accepting bribes um, from a French arms company that had been one of the f- same companies that we've described earlier, offering apartheid military intelligence uh, a range of different weapon systems. Um, and and so just on that, because that is a very disturbing image, right? What we are... what you know, I'm imagining here, which is almost certainly something that in some form or other happened, is that ANC officials would have been meeting, probably, you know, going on game drives, you know, having big dinners with wine, etc., with people that they knew were not only working hard, but also making a lot of money trying to murder them and their families and comrades at home and yet they were okay with that somehow they were somehow they appeared to have been able to build up a wall and say you know that was then um this is now we now live in a different different political reality and for certain people certainly it also appears that this different political reality was was heavily based around the ability to set up networks that could in turn benefit you. 
Dulcie's case was first closed by the French authorities in 1992. When the TRC later handed it over to the state as one of 300 cases to be prosecuted, nothing seems to have happened for two decades. That was the real erasure of Dulcie September. But in spite of all the efforts put into shutting her down, both while she lived and after she died, Dulcie was never forgotten. Her family, for example, never gave up. And they found allies who also fought for justice for the victims of apartheid. I'm Steve Karnovitz. I'm an attorney at the Legal Resources Centre in Cape Town. The LRC has, over years, acted for persons who were detained under the apartheid state. We've acted for claimants for reparations. We've had a long involvement with people in the struggle seeking for the answers about injustices that took place. And in that regard, we've also landed up acting for the family of Dulcie September in Cape Town. The case that appeared almost frozen when we first began working on this podcast seems to be slowly warming up. It was quite a difficult question because as far as I understand French law, once the inquest had been held and there was an inquest, if any further information came to light and it was presented within 10 years, then they might reopen the inquest. However, this was many more than 10 years later. Since Dulcie's case was closed and no new evidence had come to light in the eyes of the French authorities, the case was permanently closed. But the Paris lawyers who've been assisting us um, argued that in view of the fact that apartheid was a crime against humanity, prescription should not apply in this type of case. And they then wrote letters to various French authorities, and they've had a response from the Minister of the Interior, who has advised that he has asked his colleague, the Minister of Justice, that she should reopen the inquiry and embark on a rigorous inquiry. And we understand that that's where it is at the moment. So... We, we're a little bit further than we were a year ago. There's a slight glimmer of hope that the Paris authorities will relook at what was done many years ago, which led to no finding in the inquest. We will, of course, bring you an update if the French authorities decide to reopen the case. But even if they don't, the story of Dulcie September might not end with her erasure. Because... What we've come to realize is that Dulcie's story isn't just about her. The injustice and the erasure of Dulcie is symbolic of the injustice done to a nation and the erasure of many. The truth of the past couldn't be allowed to come to light because the past never ended. But more than just a symbol of continued injustice, Dulcie is also a symbol of continued resistance. This is Yasmin Sukha, the human rights lawyer and former TRC commissioner you heard earlier. In my view, we're now dealing with another generation of young victims and they're asking tougher questions. So these are the questions that I think the state needs to be able to answer because without that, I think on both sides, this country is never going to be able to rest. We will never begin the process of healing. While the criminals and corrupt politicians have done all they could to erase her, People have kept the memory and spirit of resistance alive. And maybe this is the real legacy 
of Dulcie September. She was someone who actually saw this and she stood up for it. She was not afraid to actually call out this abuse and the sexism. She was so passionate when she talked with a very simple words, but very moving words, you see, and I, I couldn't forget her. Dulcie was more than just a political comrade. She was more like a mother to me. To be prepared to stand up for what you believe in. So I suppose, in a nutshell, to have some backbone in life. <laughs> I think Dulcie was an ordinary person placed in a situation where she had to make a choice. But it's the next generation that I start asking questions and I start saying, why? And maybe it's the right moment for Dulcie to come back. They Killed Dulcie was made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. The series is developed by Open Secrets and Sound Africa with help from Neroli Price and Lars Overland. It is recorded, written and edited by Neo Rakajani and Rasmus Beats with additional narration by Nina Callahan and additional recordings by Neroli Price and Kelly Eve Koopman. For more of what we do, visit soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za. A special thanks to Michael Aronser, Nicholas Burning, Dane Dodds, and Bongani Jalivana.